Hi, this is Virginia. Events over recent years have highlighted racial inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. Here at Broad Talk, we recognise that the path towards true reconciliation is the responsibility of all of us, all the time. In that spirit, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we record this podcast, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. The system is broken. I don't get the rules at all. How far can we work within a system that we need to get rid of? I think men feel somehow women's liberation is a threat to their manhood. And it is. Tragically, I couldn't give a shit whether you think... I have a right to speak up about anything or not. People who make revolutions get burnt. We started it here! Maybe, you know, I've got some sort of crazy speak up about it mental illness. Change takes time. Do you have any regrets? No. Hello and welcome to Broad Talk. And uh, I know I say it often, but that always makes me laugh, that uh, that beautiful opening sting produced by Martin Pierce. Thanks for joining us. I'm Virginia Hausiger, and it's really, really lovely to have your company for this very special series that we're bringing you in partnership with MOAD, the Museum of Australian Democracy, housed in Canberra's Old Parliament House where I've had the fabulous and wonderful honour of guest curating a new exhibition on Australian women changemakers. So in this series, we dive into the personal stories of some of those outstanding women and kind of you know, poke around what it means to be a changemaker, how they got to where they are, what they did, and we talk about the challenges and the cost of being a changemaker. So stick with us for this series. Uh, You're in for a feast of very raw and very real inspiring stories. You can always reach out to me. um, Find us at our website, broadtalk.net. Email me on hello at broadtalk.net. You can find us on Insta at Broadtalkers or me on Twitter, Virginia House, all sorts of ways. But look, I love hearing from you and love hearing your thoughts about some of these conversations. Today, how do I even begin to introduce uh, our guest, Natasha Stott-Despoia? I've been looking forward to getting Natasha onto Broad Talk for such a long time. Gosh, where do I even start? Her list of trailblazing, extraordinary achievements is is so long. I'm not going to go through the whole lot and we'll put them in the episode notes. But in a nutshell, I first met Natasha in 1995. She had just been elected to federal parliament. She was in her 20s. And as such, she was the youngest person and indeed youngest woman elected to the Federal Australian Parliament to take up a seat in the Senate. She went on to uh, be the leader of the Australian Democrats, her party. She was a senator for 13 years. But Natasha's done enormous number of things uh, throughout her career. Her politics uh, was very dominant at the time she introduced legislation that was way ahead of its time. In fact, we can talk about this, but was one of the first or indeed the first to introduce 
uh, a bill calling for same-sex marriage way back in 2006. She was the very first to introduce a bill calling for paid maternity leave in Australia way, way back in 2002, I believe it was. When Natasha left politics, she went on to become the Australian Ambassador for Women and Girls, so stepped into a diplomatic role. She's chair of Our Watch, um, which is part of her lifelong dedication to fighting or eliminating the prevalence of violence against women. These days, she struts the global stage as Natasha was elected by or onto the United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW. And this was a phenomenal uh, win for Australia to get a an Australian member onto that committee. And Natasha was elected a couple of years ago and now spends a lot of time uh, doing her UN work. Look, Natasha, there's so much more I could say about you, but I just want to say hello. It's lovely to have you here. Oh, hello. And uh, thank you so much, not only for that incredibly generous uh, introduction, but to be considered a changemaker is uh, quite a privilege. And uh, to be included in your extraordinary exhibition means a lot to me. And it's funny you say that about us meeting all those years ago, uh, (laughs) because it has been a long time. And uh, I still have the footage somewhere <laughs> of you interviewing me for the the first time so um that's a, a nostalgic but very happy reflection that's so funny natasha because i don't i haven't seen that footage and it is a long time ago and i don't know if i want to see it although i have looked back when we were preparing the exhibition the australian women changemakers um for moad i was looking back of course at various images and photographs of you over the years when we were talking about what um object would be displayed and I saw photos of you from that time and I remember thinking oh my god she looks 12 years old but then I was a bit younger too. I was gonna say <laughs> ditto uh you know babes in arms yeah. back then very very well yeah. relatively young women and uh but these days you know embracing that you know thinking looking back and going my gosh we boldness, were boldness but uh, yeah absolutely there's mm. a, a boldness and uh and, and a resilience that uh, I guess we look back on proudly, I hope. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Natasha. I happened to be thinking this morning about that that boldness that uh, women tend to have, um, particularly women such as yourself and, and the trailblazing change makers we've included in this exhibition. Boldness that you have at a young age without even realising it in that we don't necessarily think about charging forward, we just do it. Whereas as we get older, I think we perhaps stand back and you know, think a little bit more strategically and what have you. Thank goodness for that boldness, though. I, I want to ask you, speaking of boldness, about the thing that you get asked about, I know, a lot, but we so much so that we put this in the Changemaker exhibition, your shoes, oh, yes. um, why you wore the shoes that you did. Now, I've got to say, as a journalist, as a, a television journalist, when I saw you enter the Senate for the first time wearing, God, I can't believe we're talking about this, but it's true, the clothes the clothes you wore, but particularly wearing Doc Martin boots, shoes, when no one, no woman had ever entered the Senate before who wasn't in heels of some sort, it just seemed such like a, a radical act. And yet from you, I don't think it was at all necessarily, was it? Tell us about why you chose that. I look back and can't believe the disproportionate attention in some ways that was given to my footwear. 
but I also embrace it in the sense that it was just a sensible shoe. Uh, Virginia, as you know, I'd spent a few years as an advisor, so I had literally walked the corridors of power uh, providing policy, legislative advice. I'd been a speechwriter for former senators, and that was my footwear. So mm. I made a transition to, you know, the parliament and then didn't think much about it mm. until, of course, it became a, a, a topic of discussion. But there is a, a story I tell against myself, and that is on the day of my swearing in, I actually brought a pair of heels with me, but we were running late because there was sort of media attention and well wishes. And as I was, you know, trying, running to get to the chamber in order to change my shoes before I walked in, <laughs> My uh, former boss and actual leader at the time, who was accompanying me down the aisle, shall we say, Senator Cheryl Kernow, said to me, there's no time to get changed. Come on, we've got to go in. It's your swearing in. So the shoes remained on despite my best efforts to try and uh, be a little more, I don't know, ladylike for the occasion. Um, but the reality is, as women are increasingly discovering in this day and age, there's nothing wrong with a sensible shoe. Uh, and that's <laughs> what it was, especially, you know, that place, the corridors, yeah. the kilometres of corridor mm. that you walk mm. or run down to get to a vote. It was merely that. But I do also embrace it as a bit of symbolism because I was of a different generation. I was relatively young and that was part of my generation's, uh, I guess, outfit, you know, sartorial style, for lack of a better expression. Natasha, you were young. Uh, am I getting this right? You were 24 or 26? No, I just turned 26, 26 when I was pre-selected and elected, uh, well, filled the vacancy, not elected. How did you picture yourself winning that election when there was absolutely no one in federal politics like you at that time. There was no one that young. There was no one who looked like you. You know, what made you think or look at the Senate of Australia and say, oh, yeah, I can do that, sure? I'd always been fascinated by politics but never considered being what I call a capital P politician. But I'd had this extraordinary opportunity, thanks to uh, the Democrats' former leader, John Coulter, to be behind the scenes, to understand that with the stroke of a pen, you could change lives for the better. And I loved the nitty gritty of legislating. So the Senate was the be all and end all, you know, it was the place where you really could affect change in a policy sense. So I'd seen that up close behind the scenes. And really, it happened so quickly. This is what people mm. often forget, mm. that mm. my former leader became ill resigned on the grounds of ill health, and I was next in line on a ticket. Now, no one had anticipated that Democrats would get two people elected in an election, so mm. there was no meaningful or, you know, realistic chance that I would get elected second. But, of course, when John Coulter retired, I then, you know, was expected to move into the top spot. But at the time, people challenged it. And, again, you mm. may remember this from your media coverage, colleagues in the Democrats said, no, she's too young. Mm, uh, so mm. we had to have a whole new pre-selection to fill that casual vacancy. So my life changed almost overnight. So I didn't have a lot of time to think about it. And I just did what I was doing pretty much most of my life, which is I was focused on the policy, overwhelmed by certainly the privilege, the honour and the workload. 
and I just got on with it. And that goes back to your earlier comments about boldness. People keep thinking, you know, you're plotting, you're planning, you're thinking about it. No, so much of it just happens. And suddenly you're in the Senate with anything from four to seven portfolios and you just start working hard. So I guess, you know, there's a lot, a lot of it just happened by chance Mm. as, you know, as well as hard work and luck. I love that idea, though, and this is really emerging as a theme through our changemaker interviews, Natasha, that our changemakers don't set out with a plan as such. Um, And it would seem like that's been very much the case for you, not just for politics, but for everything you've done. Is that fair to say? Look, certainly that's that is true, the sense of, you know, planning ahead or having a five-year goal, <laughs> those things weren't necessarily part of my life. And I think that's partly reflects the way I was brought up, you know, the idea I was, in, you know, imbued with the sense of you work hard and you have an obligation to others. So very much the notion that it's not about what I could do or achieve in life for me. I was always told and always encouraged to think what you could do to make the world a better place. And in particular, and this reflects my upbringing with a single parent mother, I was always encouraged. In fact, no, I was told it was my responsibility even to make sure that I advanced um, women's rights, um, you know, those of my sisters domestically and globally. And so that, if anything, has been the plan. How you achieve that? Well, obviously, there's been a few different avenues through which I've had the Mm. opportunity to try and make change. But yes, it wasn't, um, you know, a, a to-do list or a or a goal mm. or, a, as you would say, a SWOT analysis, all those things. Natasha, you were born in 69, so right on the very end of the 60s. Um, the 70s, of course, were a very active time in Australia for feminists and women's liberation. Um, in fact, incredibly so. A huge amount of work was done, huge amount of policy was was put forth. How did that time, you, you would have been a kid, but by the time you got into the 80s, how did the impact of, of feminism and women's liberation in Australia wash off on you or rub off on you? How did you feel that? Was it just through your mother or more broadly? Oh, a combination of both, but very much close to home. I mean, you can't be the child of a single parent mother and have dealings with, say, the family court uh, at a very, very young age. My parents split up when I was six. Uh, You also, when you have a mother who uh, is a journalist and a feminist and a feisty feminist at that, uh, writing about these issues or trying to get issues like violence against women into the paper or gender pay gap or something you will understand better than most, the Mm -hmm. male-dominated profession of journalism at that time, so there was an osmosis, but there was also an encouragement to read widely and attend protests. I mean, I think I attended my first Reclaim the Night, oh, I don't know, I, I would have been not even in my early teens. So my consciousness was raised very early and deliberately. Um, and then, yeah, by the 80s, you know, I was occasionally accompanying my mum to, you know, women's shelters as part of her work to talk about the scourge of domestic violence and family violence and sexual assault. So perhaps an early awakening, which is good and also, you know, confronting thing. I'm not Mm. going to pretend otherwise. And so that second wave feminism was, yeah, just really a part of my DNA. But Mm. what surprises me most, as it does all of us, I suspect, is how much hasn't changed in the last, Mm. um, 
50 years that I've been on this earth, even in the last 26 since I first entered Parliament. I get surprised by the rate and the pace of change, although I'm conscious too of extraordinary progress in Australia and across the globe. But, you know, I didn't think that we wouldn't have a parliament with gender parity by now, Mm. or I didn't think that we'd still be discussing some of the issues my mum was writing about in the 80s with the same distress, you know. You know, Tasha, it's really interesting you should say that because in in doing the research for the Changemakers exhibition and going back and reading a lot of the material from women's conferences in the 1970s, I have been really struck at how how the issues on the agenda are the same issues now. And, in fact, there's a terrific... Um, reference to a a beautiful big conference that was held in Mount Isa that uh, Quentin Bryce was uh, heading up as the head of the Women's Information Service in Queensland. And we, we actually unearthed the agenda for the two-day conference. And look, honestly, it could it could have had 2022 written on the front. It was amazing. It's it's the same issues, the same, same issues. So when you say you're surprised at what hasn't changed, mm-hmm. what if we just uh, isolate that a little bit, particularly in relation to violence, because that has been this has been a theme throughout your career, no matter what position you've been in, what hasn't changed that you thought would have by now when we, we're looking at the issue or the epidemic of violence against women? I think it's pervasiveness. I think the fact that it is uh, still, uh, as the World Health Organization would call it, an epidemic. And I guess we shouldn't, and I don't want to make the mistake of saying, you know, oh, my gosh, look at the numbers, which, of course, are horrific still. But the fact that we're very conscious of the number of women who are still subject to to violence and children as well, um, and the number of women who die, obviously, you know, almost every week on average a woman dies violently, usually at the hands of someone she knows. But sometimes we should also reflect on the fact that those numbers represent the fact that we are talking about this issue, that people are coming forward, that we are measuring the statistics. So that is a change that is arguably a good one. There is also another positive development because I try and focus on the positives, Mm -hmm. and that is we now understand we have an evidence base for why we have this violence. You know, there is an inextricable link between violence against women and gender inequality, and we understand better the drivers of this violence. So we're starting to tackle, you know, the culture, the behaviours, the attitudes that lead to this violence, and that's new. In the past, it's all very well to have a a legalistic approach or tell people Mm. it's bad, but now we're actually looking at the stereotypes, you know, rigid gender stereotypes or inequality or a lack of independence, financial and otherwise, all of these things that lead to inequality and can lead to disrespect and then violence. So we have made positive change in terms of understanding the issue and seeking to confront it, but, yes, we've got a long way to go and that's, you know, whole of community approach. It's not just mm. governments that need to do more and, boy, they need to do more, um, but we all have a role to play uh, in ending this scourge. Do you worry, though, that uh, a bit of compassion fatigue has set in around this issue and it's it's really easy to talk about, uh, you know, 
yet another conference or another gathering to talk about violence or another summit on violence against women, a women's safety summit, what have you, and that we've almost become a little bit immune to the, the realities of this situation. Look, absolutely, and the broader debate about gender inequality generally. You know, you see reports from corporates saying that uh, they've done a survey and Mm. men are sick and tired Mm. of us talking about it or we're all feeling a bit tired. Well, hey, try being advocates and activists over many, many years. We're all a bit exhausted too. But, look, I think there is change and I wish it was faster. I'd like to turbocharge it, um, particularly when it comes to access to power for women because we know there's a link obviously between women in positions of leadership, power and parliament specifically and I would say this wouldn't I Um, but those the link between that access to power and policies and legislation that you know really addresses this issue that link is very clear. So yes there's a lot of fatigue but I also feel a sense of optimism at the moment Mm -hmm. and that's hard for me because I'm a bit of a pessimist Oh, you are not. You are not. I think you're incredibly optimistic. I try and channel this, you know, sense of sometimes, you know, that despair and that overwhelming, oh, my gosh, what are we doing as human beings, be it to the planet or each other? So my focus is not Pollyanna-ish, but, yes, I do try and channel it. And at the moment I feel that there is possibility for change and that to me is reflected very much by the number of women who entered Parliament at the last election. Regardless of our partisan perspectives, I just feel that's a good thing and that gives me hope. Well, on that note, we're going to take a short break. I'm very, very pleased to hear you say that. I want to come back and talk about your strutting the global stage. We'll be back in just a moment. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to Broad Talk. And, of course, we're talking with the fabulous Natasha Stott-Despoia. Natasha, I'm thrilled to hear you speak with optimism. That uh, that warms my heart, I must say. I want to jump now onto the global stage. Now, your first big diplomatic role was as uh, the ambassador for women and girls. Tell us which you're the second person to step into that role and you really took it to a new place, I felt, raising the profile of Australia's work and advocacy, well, not only across the globe but particularly in our region around the Pacific. You did a huge amount of of, um, visits. Tell us a little bit about what that role meant to you and what you feel that you achieved as Ambassador for Women and Girls. Oh, I love that role. It was a great privilege to serve in that role and being appointed by uh, coalition government and specifically Foreign Minister uh, Julie Bishop at that time, I think, uh, raised a few eyebrows. And Why do you say really, that? Because people weren't expecting someone like me from my political background and persuasion to be supported by a coalition minister or government for a role like that. But So to why, me, why did she appoint you, do you think? Well, I think it impressed on me the fact that 
she was passionate. Julie was genuinely passionate about, you know, placing gender equality, you know, as a central part of our foreign policy and international development work. And that is reflected, and I will acknowledge under successive governments, in the work that our Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade does. You know, the fact that we do have targets, and I know some people might feel a little sceptical about targets, but the idea that 80% of our international development work has to effectively address gender equality in its implementation, that is not a bad thing. And, of course, there's more we can do, but Australia's been very good. Mm. We don't always know this at home because Mm, sometimes mm, mm. governments, I think, are wary of boasting about it just quietly, Um, foreign aid being such a vexed electoral issue apparently but I love the work that we do in the region in particular when it comes to gender equality generally but particularly women's economic empowerment Mm. women's leadership development and political participation and most notably working to eliminate violence against women and children and that to me was you know a passion. Let me just, uh, I just want to dig down into that uh, comment you made there that Australian governments seem to be a little bit wary of of talking about our, our position and success. I recently did a, or joined a um, an international delegation to Fiji looking at aid and development and Australia's contributions. And also through my work as UN Women, I've always been, or become increasingly aware of the incredible success that Australia has overseas. And, and as you say, our foreign policy with an 80% target of uh, aid going towards programs that in, that in some way impact or support women and girls is phenomenal. And it's actually quite world leading. And it, it has always surprised me that the Australian government is really, really reticent to talk about this. Do you think that the Australian public isn't sophisticated enough to appreciate the money being spent? Or is it just, is it just because this is always the way it's been done? We we keep a very low profile of our international work. Oh, look, we know politicians and governments can make political footballs out of anything, and I think foreign aid has suffered terribly over successive governments over many years. Um, and there are some Australians who genuinely don't understand the worth of foreign aid, you know, and understandably there are people who say, but why? You know, we've got so many issues at home, including, you know, poverty and many, many seemingly intractable issues in our home soil. So that's where it's up to governments. It's contingent upon governments to explain the importance of security in the region, you know, equality in the region. All of these things work in our favour. So yes, I think foreign aid has occasionally been sort of demonised and it's given politicians an argument or governments an argument for cutting it so recklessly. And that breaks my heart. I mean, I will, you know, go to the wall for foreign aid. I think it is so incredibly important. And yes, we've got good track records. And now we look around the world, particularly Mm. on the issue of gender, and you'll know this as well as I do, that, you know, there is this feminist foreign policy Mm. movement that Mm. is you know, not just developing, but is well and truly mm. entrenched in countries around the world, you know, and Canada's just recently mm. adopted the notion. Um, mm. Sometimes, Virginia, I did get a little, what I call, I had a bit of title envy. I was ambassador for women and girls, and then I'd see Finland and Sweden turn up, and they were um, ambassadors for a feminist foreign policy. And I thought, <laughs> oh, I, I love the F word. I want it in my title. But uh, I think it's only a matter of time, because you know women like Elise Stevenson and mm. uh, Sue Harris-Rimmer and people like this mm. who are doing mm. good, good work to try and develop this notion in Australia. It will happen, um, mm. I'm hoping. But, yes, there's so much more we could do. 
I just recently read a paper by Professor um, uh, Katrina Lee Koo from Monash University from the Gender, Peace and uh, Equality Centre, and it was titled Australia's Foreign Policy by Stealth, which I thought That's was right. quite, quite, quite interesting. Just moving on from your role, though, as, as Ambassador for Women and Girls, let's move on to CEDAW, the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, the United Nations. Now, this is quite phenomenal in that Australia has not had a representative on that committee for, I think it's over 40 years. I think, I think yeah. I'm right in saying that. 1982 was the last time when uh, 1982. Well, Elizabeth Everett was yeah. uh, served our country with more than distinction. So in all that time, it's taken this long to get someone back onto that committee, but you won that role in a, in a really tightly contested, hard-fought election around the globe. You mm-hmm. came into that campaign pretty late in the piece. Um, COVID was involved, et cetera, et cetera. But, but you, you did it. You, you won the role and people were surprised by that, but it was sheer hard work. I think you did over 140 Zoom meetings or something. You got up there. But now that you, you're on that committee at the United Nations, and I understand you're just back from Geneva following another committee meeting, what, what is it that you do and you know, what is it you hope to achieve by being on that committee? Well, many things. But first of all, I should acknowledge that uh, you give me too much credit when you talk about winning that position because it was a real tribute to particularly civil society and a decision by former Foreign Minister Maurice Payne to put Australia forward for that role. Uh, you know, women like Sally Moyle, yourself and others who have been at the forefront of the campaign to get an Australian onto CEDAW, plus a lot of support from our diplomatic corps. I mean, you know, people like Mitch Fifield in New mm. York, um, you know, so you had a real coalition of different people and political backgrounds pushing and supporting me in that campaign. And you're right, I, I feel dizzy when I look back at, it must have been about 180 bilateral <laughs> meetings because there are 189 state parties that have actually joined or signed up to the convention. So a lot of people to lobby and a few countries I wasn't allowed to, um, dare I say. But these days, I guess what I want to achieve obviously is to be a good participating member and you do that as an independent expert so not representative of your country so you've got to hold your own country to account in the same way that we do other state parties so I guess the first thing is supporting acknowledging the good work that countries are doing around the globe to advance women's rights but I guess more problematically and more realistically often it's holding member states to account for violations of or diminution of women's rights. And, of course, COVID has made that uh, very clear Mm. that we're seeing a lot of state parties go backwards in their support for women or, indeed, their ability to introduce mechanisms or policies or laws that uh, support and promote women's rights. So it's a really confronting time, to be honest. And the last three weeks I've seen, yeah, some real... Yeah, quite emotional, Uh, you know, talking to ministers in the Ukraine, for example, or exiled women from Afghanistan, you know, you realise that there are some serious human rights violations on this planet, but disproportionately affected always are women and girls. Natasha, what do you think is driving that, the backlash, that, that increasing dissolving diminution of women's rights that you're talking about? Well, as you know, the backlash is not new, uh, but it does 
feel intense at the moment, doesn't mm. it? I mean, we're mm. all feeling the substance and the symbolism of the changes to the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Uh, that's the epicenter, isn't it? When we talk about sexual and reproductive health rights, while they are under attack, we know that nothing is sacred, nothing is for certain, that it requires eternal vigilance, you know, the maintenance of women's and girls' rights, but also... And that rights can be turned backwards with the stroke of a pen very quickly. Absolutely. And all of it's about power, whether it's, you know, men's or women's desire to control our bodies, um, control our opportunities, um, control the positions of power, be they in parliament or elsewhere. So, and I don't mean to focus only on, you know, Roe versus Wade, which we know will disproportionately affect women who are poorer, migrant women uh, in the US, women with disabilities, the list goes on. And then you look at countries, arguably developing countries around the planet, where you have increasing rates of violence against women and girls and children generally. Because of the pandemic, you've got places like Afghanistan or Syria or, you know, countries like the Ukraine where we're seeing sexual violence in conflict. So the backlash is real. And what's causing it? Well, I suspect what's always caused it is people feeling threatened at the thought of having to relinquish power, share power. Women. When you say power. when you say people, though, who are you men, referring to? Men. men. Yeah. Patriarchy doesn't like relinquishing power. Um, in the main, men don't like sharing power. You know, we know that. And I know there'll be men out there listening who say, oh, but we're not all like that. Of course, we're not talking about all men. But in terms of where power lies in our world, in our own country, and usually in our own households, mm. it's largely resting with men. So unless we work together, <laughs> you know, to change uh, current circumstances, and that includes women having, you know, full autonomy and independence. And that, of course, uh, really centres around the right to control our own bodies. And so that's why the Roe versus Wade overturning is, is just heartbreaking for so many women on the planet. Natasha, uh, it was... Um, I don't even know how to how to express this, but it was very gratifying for me when the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Gutierrez, said on International Women's Day, I think it was 2020 or might have been 2019, uh, he, he gave a speech about power and said that women need to take back power or to take power, I should say, not take it back, but to take power and that power was there to be taken. It was the first time I've ever heard uh, a, a global leader quite frankly, any male leader, speak like that. It's so, so clearly about telling women that this, 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 we need action here and it needs to come from you. Um, did that surprise you? Look, I'm always surprised when we're encouraged to access power, <laughs> but it's not enough. I mean, we've been trying to claim power, you know. I like the idea of that sentiment from the Secretary-General because we're also taught to feel embarrassed or that we're too ambitious if we seek power. You know, mm, as a mm, relatively mm. young woman going into the Senate, I didn't understand why people used the word ambition in a derogatory, you know, way to describe me. It was always a pejorative term when which it was, you know, attributed to me, whereas I thought, isn't this what we're supposed to be doing? Women and men mm. share power equally. Men are lauded for attaining power in whatever form. So, yes, I'm pleased by his comments. He's also warned very specifically about the backlash against women. Mm. But the reality is, too, that people have to learn to share power. That's the only way that, for example, parliamentary seats will be 
you know, more evenly divided. You know, men have to step down and out of positions of power, whether that's on boards or in other decision-making institutions, because it is time to reflect our diversity and difference in all of those areas. And I mean all our diversity. Women generally with all our backgrounds, different ages, different ethnicities, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, you know, all of that deserves to be reflected and represented. And we're still a way away from that. But boy, hasn't there been fascinating change in the Mm. past six weeks. So again, that gives me hope because we're starting to see a glimpse of what our powerful institutions could be like if they reflected the community that we live in. But that is the key to policies and principles and laws that will actually, you know, better promote, better support, better advance the rights of women and girls here and around the globe. Do you find anger at times a bit motivating. And I ask this because I recently wrote a a column for the Sydney Morning Herald reflecting on Roe versus Wade, but also that what I feel is a growing mood of of, of anger uh, among women around me. And I was surprised at how many women contacted me to say, yes, yes, yes. Uh, And I wasn't inciting violence, but suggesting that uh, this is something that, you know, uh, women feel in their stirring in their hearts at the moment um, with yeah. frustration. Um, do you, But do you find that motivating? It's funny, you remind me of a badge that my mum used to wear, which was these are not hot flushes, they are power surges. Um, but, uh, sorry, I digress. Look, I mean, anger is a huge motivator, you know, um, and I work really hard to channel my anger and and as I mentioned earlier just that sense of of despair so whether it's you know in my parliamentary life when you see refugees and asylum seekers demonized and you just feel gosh I want to give up this is Mm. what are we doing and then you think no I'm going to use this to create change I'm going to use this to try and motivate not only me but other people and I think power uh, anger is such a powerful motivation. And we only have to look at what happened in early last year in Australia, where women took to the streets, men, women, non-binary, a Mm. range of Australians took to the streets to channel their anger, their frustration, their despair, and look where it got us. I mean, people were questioning, would that result in change? Would it have electoral impact? Would it be significant at all? You bet it was significant. Mm. It actually Mm. had a demonstrable and meaningful impact, not only in terms of the elections, Mm. but I would argue in terms of policies and cultural change. So I'm, yeah, I'm a big believer in channeling that anger. I just try not to let it overwhelm me sometimes and I don't want to go down the rabbit hole. I want to use it positively and productively. Can I ask you what do you do though when at times, and I'm sure it happens because it's just human, at times when it does feel overwhelming and you've, you've just had enough or you feel like you've banged your head against a, a, a brick wall too many times in a row, what, what do you do to pull yourself back up again? Well, isn't relativity a great thing? Because especially working for eight years at that wonderful organisation, Our Watch, um, the National Foundation to Prevent Violence Against Women and Their Children. And I wasn't frontline, but every day, every day I was reminded of violence and violence against women and children. And the stories were haunting. And I must admit that became quite overwhelming. And then I remember this is happening here and all around the world. And I look at the resilience 
mm. of survivors, victims and survivors. And I realise that our obligation is to make the world better and make change. So what is it that then makes you feel able to continue and to go on? Well, there are lots of things. I'm lucky to have a wonderful family, a marvellous dog. I go go for walks on the beach, as trivial as that sounds. And, of course, my passion has always been music and the art. So you can find that really does help, you know, reaffirm mm-hmm. life for you. But, again, everything is relative. And, you know, I go over to the Human Rights Council or as Ambassador for Women and Girls, I travelled to some of the most extraordinary places on the planet where women's rights were just terrible and you realise we're very fortunate and we have an obligation to help mm. others. So there's that sense of we can make change, there's a meaningful contribution to be made, but, yes, therapeutic things like water and music and family. <laughs> family not always, just quietly, when you've got a son <laughs> in year 12, I'm just saying. Uh, but uh, those things mean a lot and, of course, friends and support networks. And, Virginia, you will know as well as I do that uh, good sisterhood Mm. A good mm. network of like-minded, particularly women and feminists, that is critical and it's been a part of my life since I was a child and mm. I'll never do without it. I'm just going to share with you, and I've never actually thanked you for this, but um, some time ago, quite a long time ago, um, just speaking of sisterhood, you sent me a tiny little block of chocolate that just had on the front, sisterhood is powerful. I think it was International Women's Day. I still have it. It is still in my fridge. It's been there for years. And speaking of sisterhood, it was one of those, yeah, kind of, yeah, thank you kind of moments. I, I just yes, love that. Who keeps chocolate that. in the fridge for years? Virginia <laughs> just when I thought I knew you. No, but you're, you're I'm allergic. I'm right. allergic, but I, I just love the idea. Um, <laughs> Natasha, I, we're going to have to finish up, but just very briefly, um, I do need to ask you this because this is a question we ask all our change makers: is has there been a, a, a significant cost or what has been the cost for you being a change maker in the myriad different ways that you have been throughout your life? I have been very fortunate to have great experiences and opportunities and the opportunity to even make change is something that I relish. In terms of the costs, well, your listeners could reflect on it might be a bit difficult growing up in the public eye, so to speak, uh, in, in politics. And there's also a sense of, I guess, more seriously, seeing the world as it is sometimes is confronting. Mm. Seeing the things that humanity, people are capable of. I've seen the worst of humanity, you know, whether it's abject poverty or horrific violence. And then you think that's a cost because I think it just chips away at your soul and your well-being at times. And then the flip side, Virginia, is, of course, when you see the best of humanity and you know that, wow, we can do good and we can support each other and we can change the world in a way that does make it a better place. So, yes, there are costs And my costs probably pale in comparison to people who have much, much tougher, harder lives. But, yes, sometimes I wish I had uh, rose-coloured glasses all the time because um, (laughs) when you see the bad stuff and you hear the terrible stories, I think it does just chip away a little at at your sense of self and, and, yeah. But, you know, we keep moving on, don't we? Because change... (laughs) 
You know, I even ran a political campaign called Change Politics. So, yes. And change happens. Yeah, and change does happen. And I don't mean to finish on a negative note because I think that the takeout from all of what you've said is that change is possible and change does happen. And it's it's never easy. It's look, it's not. We rejoice in small victories, and you know that's important. But I always joke about my political or parliamentary life as a Pantene moment. You know that '90s <laughs> shampoo commercial. It won't happen overnight, but it will happen. So there you go. Can I just say your hair is looking lovely? I want to finish on on a, a little lyric. Um, you were asked many many years ago about because you often talk about music and one of your favourite lyrics, and you referred to "Let It Go" from Frozen. Now I didn't know what Frozen was, so I actually had to go and look it up. But the lyric goes: "It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go." Beautiful, Natasha. Natasha, you are a national treasure and I'm so grateful um, for you joining us on Broad Talk and and making time to do this, particularly as you've just got off a plane from Geneva and I know you're very jet-lagged. But thank you so much. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you, Virginia. Next time we'll do Jesus and Mary Chain lyrics. (laughs) Okay. I'll hold you to that. Thanks, Natasha. (laughs) Goodbye. And to all of you, to all of you who stayed with us, I hope you've enjoyed this discussion as much as I have. I'm sure you have. Um, it's been such a delight. And once again, as I say, let us know what you're thinking and, and share your thoughts with us. Martin and I love hearing them. You can get uh, onto us via hello at broadtalk.net or via all those social media channels. We're, we're there everywhere and uh, and we love hearing from you. But in the meantime, until our next episode of this fabulous series on change makers, you know what to do. Keep talking. 